okay, before we, uh, I turn the music off. Um, so you're saying you can't, you can only see what now, Jennifer? Whatever your screen is, like you wrote, we will start in seven minutes. But right, I don't so have we're any gonna, of the windows that I opened. Right. The only thing you need to have open is the Slack room. So in case anybody uh, wants to ask a question, you'll see any comments there. And then you'll have okay. your slide deck. And okay. So will those comments come in under your, where you have, we will start in seven minutes? Yes, and I'm going to be sharing my okay. screen right now, so let's, let's go to the PowerPoint slide. Great. All right, just a Great. moment, just a moment. Okay, do you see that slide up? I do, but I cannot see the Slack room anymore while the slide's up. Right. Yeah, that's that's uh, the challenge of Zoom, right? Um, but you'll you'll see since um, the, I'm sharing my computer with the participants, um, then when I go back to the Slack room, um, yeah, you're gonna that's gonna be the challenge is seeing it when the full the Zoom is in full screen. Although, can they get out of full screen? It won't let me get out of full screen. It only gives me the option of ending the meeting. I think if you hit escape, it should minimize it on your computer. Yeah. So if you hit escape, it will allow you okay, to yeah, do that. Okay, yeah, I just did that. Okay, that works. Yeah. All righty. So, all right. Okay, are we ready to start? Um, we're looking for some video function. I'm not sure how you know that. This is her Zoom. That's mute. We don't want to use the sound in Zoom. We don't have the video capability on our end for us. Okay. Um, all right. So um, I will try to be your visuals as much as possible. Are you ready to start? We've got people on the line. Okay. Jennifer I think and Jack, are you? Okay. Yeah. Oh. Oh, there. there you are. Okay. We see you. We see you. I got it. We see you in the video. Don't move out of the screen. Okay. I, okay. That's great. I'm so glad that we see you. All right. We're going to go ahead and start, guys. Thank you for closing the door. Um, all right. So welcome to the special live episode of the Texas Conflict Coach Radio Program. And this is in coordination with the annual Association for Conflict Resolution Conference in Addison, Texas. And I am Patty Porter, the founder and host. Now, we have a number of people already on the Blog Talk Radio Studio as part of our virtual track. So we are taking your live calls at 347-324-3591. And for those who are in the uh, studio already, having called in, you will press the one key uh, throughout the program if you would like to comment or ask questions throughout our 90-minute program. And we do have designated Q&A time, so I'll be paying particular attention to the studio um, to uh, open those lines for you. Uh, for those who are in the ACR virtual track uh, Slack room, um, and, and if you don't know what it is, that means you're not part of the virtual Slack, but if you are a virtual Slack, um, uh, virtual track, excuse me, member of ACR, you can access the PowerPoint slides as a PDF there in the room. Just scroll up and you'll see the PDF slide. 
but I'll also be sharing my screen so you'll see it through the Zoom link there. And uh, Heather Lester is going to be and Colin Rule are in the Slack room, so they'll also help you with uh, technical questions uh, and also any questions that might come up during the program. So we are using the hashtag ACRDallas2017 uh, if you're posting through the social media network. Today, our guests are Drs. Jennifer Kalfspeak Gertz and J Dr. Jack Gertz, that's G O E T Z. And we're going to lead a discussion on professionalizing mediation, understanding the impact of taking the next step. And mediation is a powerful process, but it's still largely society's best kept secret outside of the litigated case arena. Professionalizing mediation promises to create public awareness and increase use. So these are the questions we're going to look at. What makes an occupation a profession? What are the consequences of not professionalizing? And what is the impact of taking the next steps for mediators and disputants alike? Jennifer Kalsbeek Gertz is currently the Dean of Students, uh, excuse me, Dean of Student Learning at Moorpark College in Southern California and was formerly the Assistant Dean of Program Development at California State University at Northridge. And Dr. Jack Gertz is a lecturer in law for the Judge Judith O. Hollinger program in alternative dispute resolution at USC Gould School of Law. Prior to moving to USC, he was the academic lead for a 100-hour mediation training certificate program that he created in 2009 and then taught for seven years at the California State University campuses in Northridge and Dominguez Hill. Dominguez Hill, excuse me. You can find their very full bios at TexasConflictCoach.com. So Jack and Jennifer, welcome to the program. Uh, I'm glad we can actually uh, see you both uh, in the Zoom. So that's fabulous. So welcome to the program. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Patty. So why don't we start off with what would you like the participants to understand about your passion and knowledge in professionalizing our field? Well, I'll start with that, Patty. Thank you so well, much. Uh, I, I think if we all agree that peacemaking is a very important role, plays a very important role in the world, and I suggest that's probably what brings us all to a conference like this, then it's likely we dream about mediation or mediators being the first choice in conflict resolution rather than other choices. The proverbial, shall we say, peacemaker on every corner. The question is, how do we get there? Because mediation is still largely an underutilized resource, certainly in the United States. And the track Dr. Jennifer Kalsbeck gets and I have pursued over the last few years has been to look at mediation, at, instead of looking at it as a field and an avocation, is look at it in relationship to other more formalized professions who have already gotten the notoriety and are the proven tracks and how they got there. And that's what drives us in our research. That's what drives us in our in our public awareness. That's what drives our passion for doing, um, for, follow, for the follow-up steps that require mediation to be better known in our community. Jennifer? No, I think that that really summarizes it well. I come to this as the sociologist with an understanding of um, what makes a profession a profession and also with um, more of a passion for the social justice side of this and professionalizing really um, creating a more positive um, environment for especially those who wouldn't have access to mediators otherwise. 
All right. Thank you, uh, Jennifer and Jack, for uh, giving that additional information. Um, so we're going to go right into uh, some of the questions. And uh, the first thing we're going to actually do is a poll, all right? So we have participants in the room physically here so that you'll know that Jack and Jennifer. We also have people on the Blog Talk Radio studio, and I assume, Heather, we have people in the Slack room, yeah. potentially. So this is what we'd like for you to do. You're going to engage in a ranking poll, so please get your phone or tablet out if you have that, and you're going to see the link. Uh, first of all, those who are in the physical room with me, you're going to see the link right up here on the flip chart page. Uh, and the first question, uh, in, in the Slack room, you'll see the link, pollev.com backslash PatriciaPort956, uh, and that's actually in the Slack room now. So the first question you're going to be ranking is, um, how do you believe the public perceives the level of importance of the following seven occupations in our society? So how do you believe the public perceives the level of importance of the following seven occupations in our society? This is a ranking poll. You are simply going to go to that link, and you're going to move those occupations in the order with one being the highest ranking and seven is the lowest ranking. So just take a few minutes to go ahead and start uh, moving that around, and you're going to see the live results show up on the screen. Right, the focus is on public perceptions. What does the public think? What does the public think? Yes, thank you for clarifying that. And as you start to respond, remember to hit submit response and we'll start to see the responses show up on the screen. So those of you who are on Blog Talk Radio Studio on the phone, if you have your computer, go to poll, P-O-L-L-E, vlikeinvictor.com, backslash Patricia, P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A, P-O-R-T, 956. And once you go there, you'll see the first rank, and you'll see how things will change on the screen as people continue to put their responses on. If you've got your, uh, Richard, if you have your uh, phone or tablet, you can participate if you'd like. So right now, as, we're, as people are uh, clicking on links, you see uh, doctors listed first, nurses, teachers, and accountants are tied in third place, lawyers, mediators, and social workers in that order so far. I'll give it a couple more minutes. Yeah, I think there we go. We, I'm sorry, Patty. Go ahead, Jack. Uh, go ahead, Jack. I, I think it's... I think it's always important to start out with what we think the public views us and how they view us to have a better understanding of maybe we're not half and we're not satisfied with that result. Um, if we're not satisfied with the result, how do we get to a different result? So it's always good to start with the basic, what do we think, how, how are we viewed within society? How are we viewed as a field? How are we viewed as an occupation? Um, and, and the better assessment, self-assessment we give ourselves better able we can see the path to getting to a, a different result if that's what we want. 
And Jack, we uh, still have things moving around, so uh, we'll give maybe another minute or so, a couple of minutes. Would that be good for you, Jack and Jennifer? Yeah, that sounds good. Fantastic. It's interesting to see the movement. Good. And I was going to say, you do see the results popping back and forth, right? Absolutely. Lawyers have moved up quite a bit with the most recent, so it's just interesting to see. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's great to see people really weighing in on their perceptions of what they think society thinks, which is really what we're looking for here. Yes. So if you're just joining us on Blog Talk Radio or in the Slack room, uh, we're doing a ranking poll at polleevlikeinvictor.com forward slash Patricia, P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-P-O-R-T-956. And ranking for one equals highest and seven lowest, you physically move each of those occupations in the order you believe uh, that the public perceives as the level of importance. So we're going to look at a second poll momentarily. Not just, just another few seconds here. Looks like uh, we see doctors, nurses, lawyers, accountants, teachers, social workers, and mediators in that order so far. All right. I'm not seeing anything else move, so I'm going to um, go ahead. I'm going to escape for a moment so we can go, go to the second poll. Just a moment. Alrighty. They might need to refresh their screens. All right, so the second poll is coming up. It's now open. You might have to refresh your screens. This is the same link. The second question you're looking at is in your ideal world, rank the following seven occupations, same occupations, on what should be their level of importance to the public. So in your ideal world, rank the following seven occupations on what should be their level of importance to the public. So we'll give you a moment to do that. Right. So the key here is should be. We were imagining before people's perceptions. How should these rank in our minds? Right, and so for those who are still on Block Talk Radio Slack Room, it's the same event, excuse me, the same link, pollev.com forward slash Patricia, port 956, same exact link. You might need to refresh your screen to see the new question. In your ideal world, rank the following seven occupations on what should be their level of importance to the public. We'll give just a moment to that, and then Jack and Jennifer will be speaking to those results. Mm, big difference. And Patty, we do find there's differences when we run these polls elsewhere with audiences, so it's not unusual to see a difference between what we think the public perceives us as and where we ideally would be. And, and of course, it makes sense that ideally we would like our advocates in our field, but one of the things that brings us to this conference, to be uh, perhaps higher in the public eye eventually. And while we do see differences okay, between the two polls, this 
is very similar to what we see among groups. So in other audiences that you have polled, uh, you're seeing a lot of the same similarities in responses. Yeah, and I'll, I'll share specifics uh, when we, but I, I'd like to let everybody have an opportunity to answer, and, and we'll we'll see how our audience here today compares with other audiences that we have polled in the past. All right, just a moment. Give it just a few more seconds, and then we'll um, then I'll go back to the first poll so you can speak to that. Okay. Now let me go. I'm going to go back to. The, I'm going to display the first poll so that you can speak to that. Is that uh, is that where we're at, Jack? At this point? Yeah, I think um, you know this poll is pretty consistent with how polls have worked out in the past. But again, Jennifer and I do this at uh, various conferences uh, elsewhere. But uh, typically, now um, I will say that our audience today is very optimistic about where mediators might end up. Typically, what we find is uh, most audiences uh, rank mediators sixth or seventh in public perception. So that was the first poll that, that we took today. And then when we move over to the second poll, which is the one where in our ideal world, where would we like to see mediators placed? Uh, generally, audiences are at four or three. And of course, this audience is at three, or at least even tied for second with nurses currently. Mm -hmm. So there's a, as, as we like to say, there's, there's a gap and there's a, the arrow goes up um, from the first poll, which is how we're perceived, to the second poll, which is how ideally we would like to be perceived. And the question always comes for Jennifer and I as we look at these results is how do we get from A to B? How do we get from our current level of perception? And what do these other fields do to get from, at some point, their level of perception to where their current perception is with the public? So how do we get from slide A to slide B? How do we get there if that's where we want to go? And I'll turn it over to Dr. Kalspecker. Great. All right, so uh, so give me a moment to sli uh, sw uh, switch over to the slide deck, and that way you can speak to the slide. No problem. No problem. And really, we came to what we're going to talk about today through conversations as Dr. Gatz would um, talk to me about his conversations with his colleagues and, and people um, referring to mediation as being sometimes equal to their um, other colleagues who are lawyers um, or therapists who are engaging in mediation, but also sort of lamenting the fact that for some reason it didn't seem to, um, they didn't seem to have the same clout or um, prestige within society. And with my sociology background, I kept saying, well, it's not a formalized profession. And with conversations, we finally decided to publish an article, and now we're talking about it. Um, so as the first slide points out, Anyone can claim that they're a mediator. So if you think about the seven um, professions, and there are many others, in all of those other professions, people can't say, I am an accountant. I mean, they could say it, but there are actually rules against it, and we wouldn't go about saying that. Whereas with mediators, anyone could put out a sign or a shingle on their, on their office and say, I, I operate as a mediator because they think that they have those qualities. So... 
it's important to talk about what makes an occupation a profession um, and why does that matter. And a lot of the confusion comes, first of all, from the notion that we use the word professional or professionally um, very loosely um, and colloquially. Um, we'll say, I'm behaving professionally, or we've written a very professional email or letter, or we've dressed professionally. And so we think of the term professionally as being very broad, just when we behave the way we're supposed to in the workplace, it means we are being professional. And so that muddies the waters in terms of what a profession, a formalized profession really is. Also, um, earning money to do a job is oftentimes the the um the bar that people think we have to meet in order to be professionals. Um, that makes sense when we think of athletes or actors. Um, if they're you know if it's an an actor or an actress wait, waitressing tables and hoping to get a gig, they refer to themselves as professional actors when they finally get that paying job and they can leave the waitressing or bartending. Same with athletes that are amateurs until they get that big paycheck, now all of a sudden they're professional athletes. And so we tend to use the word profession or professionally very broadly. And of course, we've all heard the old adage, the oldest profession in the world. And I don't think when we're talking about mediation, we're thinking of these things that we've described here. So sociologically, um, we talk about professions, formalized professions. So they're a part of, they're an occupation, they're an occupational level but they're called professions, and they have five key characteristics. First of all, within society, you're, you are within a profession. If you serve the public in some way, and we'll talk a little bit more about that because maybe one of those in the poll did not necessarily seem to fit that, but we'll talk about that. Professions have an understood official code of ethics. If you think about doctors, lawyers, doctors, social workers, nurses, and, of course, accountants, they all have a broadly understood and accepted code of ethics. They self-regulate. They have regulating bodies that other peer professionals have to um, um, abide, have to listen to, and have to um, use as reference. They require specialized education, so you can't just put a shingle outside your office to say you're a nurse. And they have a certain amount of authority in society, for the most part, because of items one through four. So occupations and jobs that are not at the level of profession do not have all five of those qualities. But if all five of those qualities exist within a society, they're an official or formalized profession. So now we can start to sort of see how mediation and those other professions fit in. Let's talk about, on the next slide, a little bit more specifics in terms of these criteria. So with service to the public, you know, the slide talks about serving humanity. And because society has determined that some practitioners should abide by standards that require accountability to the public. So there's your accountancy or accountants. There are some professions that exist that if they continued in their work without having those being elevated to the level of a profession with the regulations and the code of ethics, then they could do damage. And so occupations like accountancy and um, architecture and some fields of engineering are also considered professions. And you will find that they have self-regulation, of course, specialized education, 
and their service to the public is their accountability to the public. We wouldn't want an architect designing a building that couldn't withstand winds, earthquakes here in California, tornadoes there, or hurricanes in Texas and otherwise. So those also fit professions, but obviously medical doctors, nurses, teachers, social workers, lawyers are also expected to serve greater good or serve humanity. So professions have that quality. And some people will say, well, plumbers have to be certified. Aren't they a profession? But they don't have the same level of service to the public. The second quality is a code of ethics. In a commonly applied sanctioned practice or code of ethics that's articulated by a regulating body. Right. So we're still on the second item on that, on that first slide. So professions have a code of ethics that's commonly understood and accepted by the full profession, like the Hippocratic Oath for um, doctors. Um, lawyers maintain confidentiality. Um, MSWs or social workers are all mandated reporters. So there's certain codes of ethics that don't change from one group of them to another. They're commonly applied and understood. Next is self-regulation. An occupation is a group, as a group is not a profession, and it does not have self-regulation. So most jobs that we think about um, are not self-regulated. They may be regulated if there's a problem by, their, by an owner of a company, but not by the profession itself. Without this kind of regulation, an occupation that cannot fully serve the public, and regulation includes autonomy of practice, it's important that they have the code of ethics. It also includes qualifying exams and oversight bodies. So if we think about, um, we can go to a medical board if we want to file a malpractice suit. Um, we can file suits to regulating bodies against all of those professions that we talked about other than mediation. Also, professions have specialized education because the assumption is that there are unique skills and there's a unique knowledge base that professionals need in order to properly serve the public, understand their code of ethics, and self-regulate. So the education usually includes ad abstract complex knowledge base as well as practical training, so um, a practica um, or um, internship. And then to maintain your professional professionality um, or your status within the profession, all professions require continuing education, in part because you do have that autonomy and that service to the public. We need to maintain this level. And the last really is that level of authority that professions are regarded with. Um, because professionals possess specialized knowledge and skills, they're valued by the public, as we saw as people were rating the different levels. And professions exist to support the greater good of a society. Combined with the power to self-regulate, professionals possess significant authority in society. So let's now look at some of those key criteria and compare them to the seven occupations or professions that we were talking about. I'm not seeing... Are we still connected? I'm sorry. Uh, right. I see we're connected by phone, but I don't see that we're connected by video with the slides. I can continue with the slides, um, but I'm not hearing the phone either. 
trying to check in with the phone feed just to see. Okay, well, in talking with Patty earlier, she would mentioned if we lose the Zoom, it's okay to go ahead and continue with the um, – oh, I'll stand by. It says the blog talk radio has hit a snag, so stand by. Got it. Jennifer, we got a question. Great. Uh, is this an accurate question regarding mediators, especially if mediators are not regularly sought out by the public? Is what an accurate question? I, I believe okay. Okay. the listener was asking about the um, poll questions. Oh. And it strikes me that that might be which which is the cart and which is the horse. Why aren't re mediators regularly sought out by the public? Right. I, did you want to address that? Um, well, I think one of the main questions is how how can they be regularly sought out by the public? What are the what are the methods or means to do that? Um, without if, without formally um, formalizing them as professions. Sorry, we're also trying to track the, the technology as it's coming in and out here. Um, it's hard for people to, see, to seek them out. How do they learn about what they do? Um, when you have a formalized profession, part of that self-regulation is the, is the PR that goes along with it. Lisa, Lisa, did that answer your question? If not, please go in ahead and send in the other question. I do believe it's a it's a cart and horse question. We're not regularly sought out by the public because we have not taken us to the next level. We haven't developed the public accountability. We haven't done some of the other things that other avocations and fields have done to develop into something that would be regularly sought by the public. And, of course, the research shows that the public won't seek us out regularly until we do that. That's, that is part of what's driving some of the movement here in California, some of the initiatives in California. Great. And Lisa says she feels like the question's answered. So Thank you. that tells us we're also still in audio. <laughs> and I see the videos back, too. So what we can do now that we've talked briefly about these five key criteria is take a look at that notion of licensure and ethics on the next slide, um, and compare so that you can sort of see those seven professions that we chose to include the, or the six professions in the one occupation um, to sort of show how we stack up with some of these five key qualities. Um, I think that we're moving to the next slide. We may, this may be where we're still having some technical difficulty, so I will speak to that slide. Um, and I think it's been handed out to the group as well. But the next slide talks about licensure and or ethics codes are required. And we know um, just in alphabetical order that accountants, public accountants anyway, that are certified do have to pass a CPA exam and there is a code of ethics that they must follow and they can lose their ability to practice as CPAs if they do not follow that and they don't have the ability to do it unless they um, pass their licensure exam. Same with doctors, and I'm just doing them in alphabetical order, not based on any sort of priority. Doctors, of course, we know, thank goodness, that they have to pass several exams and that there is a code of ethics that they must abide by. Lawyers as well, though sometimes people joke, we wonder if they're following a code of ethics, but we know absolutely they must, and the one that most of us um, value a great deal is the confidentiality, which is a part 
universally of lawyers in the United States. Then alphabetically comes mediators. There is not a common um, licensure or certification exam for mediators, so we don't have um, an equivalent to the CPA, like uh, an MPA or something like that. That would be nice to have. Um, and while there are definitely codes of ethics that mediator groups will have um, in the LA Superior Courts here, other um, bodies of mediators, and there are a lot of overlap in those, there's not one commonly held or defined code of ethics that mediators follow across the board in the United States yet, I'd like to add. Hopefully that won't remain that way. Following that is nurses, registered nurses. We know that they have to pass an exam and follow a code of ethics very similar to that that medical doctors follow. Social workers are licensed, therefore they have the licensure and regulation and have a code of ethics that they must follow. And unlike um, lawyers, social workers are mandated reporters universally. So they have a different code for a different reason, both to serve the public. And then teachers, especially at the K through 12 level, not at higher education level, there is a licensure exam or a certification exam. So there's self-regulation and there is a code of ethics for teachers that is universally understood for K through 12 in the United States. I'm not seeing the slides moving, but I'm gonna go ahead and move along with them because I think it's possible that you all are still able to follow along with these, even if they're not follow, if, even if they're not moving in the um, in the shared um, space in the classroom. So let's talk about the examination required. And again, we'll just go through these professions um, alphabetically. And um, we're trying to also monitor the chat room in case we see any questions that pop up, which is fine. Um, so again, let's look at accountants. We know they have to. Oh, here we go. Um, we have moved not to that slide, but the one right after. We just did the licensure. We just did this one, licensure and ethics code, and you can sort of see what it looks like visually, and you can see the disparity, and one group, mediators, does not have a universal licensure or code of ethics. And then we can move on to the next slide, which is the examination slide. We know that doctors and lawyers, nurses, have to sit for an exam to be certified, Let's see, Beth Myers is asking if the slides will be shared. And I believe that they have been. Um, I'll defer to Patty, but my understanding is that the PowerPoint slides ha have been and certainly will be um, made available to everyone. Um, so for the person who's advancing us through the slides, great, we're on the examination um, slide as well. Um, and here we can see, we know accountants. Oh, now we went, let's go back to the examination one still. For the accountants, we know that they have to pass a CPA exam to become CPAs. Doctors have to pass their medical boards as well as pass their internship. So we're on the previous slide, not the one that's being displayed right now. Lawyers, we all know, have to pass the bar exam. Mediators do not currently have a universally um, accepted exam that they have to pass in order to hang that shingle and say that they're mediators. Registered nurses have to pass an exam and at each level of nursing, they have to pass additional exams. Licensed social workers also have levels um, all the way up to MSWs having to pass exams in order to practice. And teachers in the kindergarten through 12th grade system also have to pass a certification and exam in order to teach in the public school system. 
And again, we can see sort of glaringly that there's not a commonly held exam that mediators have to pass in order to show that they have acquired those um, skills and that knowledge base in order to practice mediation. And for those of you who are mediators, you can imagine some of the things that one might be um, examined on that right now we hope mediators are following and doing, and we believe most are behaving ethically and, and understand evaluative and facilitative and when to use it, but we don't know um, without having an exam like that. The next is the required education level. Are there any questions that I should address before we move on to that one? No. Okay, looks like we're good. So this is really, um, really shows the disparity among them. And again, we're listing them in alphabetical order rather than in a ranked order. So accountants need, like um, social workers, you can see are similar. At the, at the, um, at the, at the um, required level, accountants need almost 7,000, so 6,700 hours of, um, of education in order to be certified. And the same goes for social workers, you can see down below. Doctors and lawyers hover at that 10,000 with doctors almost at 11,000 and lawyers just under the 10,000. In terms of formalized education to acquire the skills and the knowledge to be considered practice. Now they still have to pass the exams for all of these after these hours of education, but clearly there's the expectation that these professionals have acquired skills and knowledge um, that take oftentimes many years to acquire in order to serve the public in their professions. You can see alphabetically mediators land in the middle and there's no education required. We know that there are some educational standards in different states or among different organizations that may require a few hours of training, but none that's universally understood or accepted. Registered nurses, with an associate's degree require 2,700, but most of us know that many of the nurses that we see if we go to the emergency room, doctor's office, or have a stay in the hospital are beyond the registered nurse level and at the other levels, BSN and MSN levels that are approaching what social workers and even doctors have. Licensed social workers, again, at that 6,700, and teachers require twice that of registered nurses and almost what accountants require of 5,400 approximate hours to earn that bachelor's degree and credentials so that they can serve as teachers. So again, while we see mediators as being as important, and in some cases maybe more important than some of these professions, we don't have that required education that's universally accepted and understood in the field. Therefore, at best, it's an occupation, um, but certainly not a formalized profession yet. So Jennifer, you know, as I present these slides to the community, the question always comes up, um, can, it looks daunting. I mean, from afar, it looks a little daunting. I does do, now there are degrees out there for conflict resolution. Some, there are some bachelor degrees in conflict resolution. There are some master's degrees out there. And of course, um, there are some law schools that offer an LLM in conflict resolution. Would it be necessary for the field of mediation to to adopt a degree like that, or are there some in betweens, or don't we? Or is that something we just don't know? Um, I think that there are in betweens, and I think that we don't fully know, but I think that there are in betweens. Um, it could be that the field of mediation could decide that um, people could have a degree, maybe it's an associate's degree, or maybe it's a bachelor's degree in any field, with um, a certificate or training that is formalized 
that focuses on the field of mediation. Um, for example, we know that lawyers don't have to have a degree in an undergraduate degree in law or even history. In fact, a lot of biology majors go on to law school. So it's the, the law school um, degree that we've counted in terms of the hours. But I think it is, one could argue that there are a lot of disciplines, psychology, history, um, business, many of them that would be great foundations for mediation. Um, but I think also you would need to show what your outcomes need to be. What does someone need to know to appropriately mediate? And I think that that could be achieved at a level that's not necessarily a bachelor's degree. Um, it could be a certification after an associate's degree or after a bachelor's degree. And maybe without those, the degree would be in a related field. So I think there is some middle ground. So the slide here essentially shows that to get from the, to cover that gap, to go from the, in our, in our audience today, going from that seven spot, which is the public perception, to the, we have to do something. It, uh, and what we have to do, we may not know yet, but it can't be 20 hours or 30 hours or 40 hours of education. Prob it, it, probably not. It probably won't get there. And what we have to do is something more, and no one really knows what more, but it, there's something more that has to be done. Right. I think so. And I think also a regulating body would, would be made up of, of – um, members in the field, and they might decide, well, you could have an associate's degree in anything and six years of practical experience and a certificate that shows your knowledge, or a bachelor's degree in two years and a master's degree in one. So there are different combinations, and that's why you need a regulating body, so that they can, as um, peers that understand the field, really help define what you need to do. Thank you. Right. So we can move on to the the next slide in terms of the impact of not professionalizing. And really the way we see it. So Jack and Jennifer, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, before we go on to that next slide, um, I wanted to, I think we were at a place that we might have a couple of questions here in the room. Uh, would y'all be willing to do a, a short Q&A before we go to slide seven? Absolutely. Okay, great. For those who might have a question so far at this point with Jennifer and Jack, uh, either in the Slack room, Heather is monitoring that, or on Blog Talk Radio, there's a number of people on the phone, uh, and we have people in the room. So it's to monitor that. If you are on the phone, press the one key to let me know if you have a question or comment for Jennifer and Jack based on uh, what has been happening in the conversation. And uh, while you're doing that, I'm going to ask the room here if anyone has a comment or question about what you're hearing. I realize some of it you couldn't hear initially, but Richard, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I know I just went through a very rigorous program and ultimately a 40-hour uh, conference, seminar, and had to go through a, a battery of, of uh, Inputs and, re and recommendations is provided as a mediator in Florida. I agree with you that I'm also a professional engineer and a professional engineer, undergraduate, and all those things. That to reach that professional level, there has to be some type of uniform understanding of across the board of the qualifications and the 
expertise that's going to be offered to the public, because I feel that mediation is truly a public service and a professional service that has to have a certain level of requirement and uh, expertise to be able to be neutral and be able to provide that, uh, that balance between the parties. But I, don't, I, I believe, as part of my experience in professional registration, that without that, we're never going to be Just parts of it, so it would help you summarize. Yeah, so Richard, who's in the audience here, uh, you know, has a number of professional backgrounds. Uh, he's done quite a bit of, uh, you know, as a professional engineer, for example, but he's done a number of, you know, uh, quite a bit of education in the field of mediation in Florida. Uh, but ultimately his uh, comment was, is will we ever, ever reach that level of professionalism in this field? Uh, and I think that's what you're going to also be talking about. What is the impact? What is this next step that we count in accountability? And, and he was saying it's quite pretty admirable uh, that we're that you're bringing this up in terms of how do we do this? Because it seems like it's uh, you know almost uh, an, an impossible task to do. Not that was my words, uh, not Richard's. But uh, so he was bringing that up. So I don't know if you have some comments about that. Well, I do, Richard. It's great. It's a great comment. Great question. I think uh, the rest of the presentation, actually, when we get to it, may help answer that because we're pursuing a model in uh, our initiative here in California is to pursue a model of voluntary mediator certification that would embed a lot of the characteristics of a profession but maybe not go as far in the educational realm as Jennifer would have us go, <laughs> perhaps, but um, to incorporate what we all know is standard and quality mediator training with a, an ethics code, with a quality assurance that the public can count on. And we like to believe that if we're successful in launching this model, that it, it could elevate our field to where people would want to call mediators directly. Because right now, most of the time, we get referrals through lawyers, and we're not the, we're not the first number on the speed dial. Uh, and I'm sure <laughs> like to see a date car. Um, so, um, Richard, great comment. If you can hold off maybe towards uh, towards the end of the, and bring it up again, uh, but I think we have some other slides that may answer that. Agreed. Okay. I believe there's a question in the Slack room. Is that right, Heather? Is there uh, uh, Jack, is there a question in the Slack room? Because you could probably see it better than there's I do. There's a question that I, I'm intuiting from the Slack room, oh. so let me just say. Okay. Um, yeah. What about uh, we in the dispute resolution field, you know, we have often provided our services for free. You know, we have a lot of volunteer mediators that work in the courts and volunteer mediators that work in neighborhoods. Are we undermining our own sense of professionalism by providing those kind of easily accessible uh, services? And by saying that we kind of want everybody to become a mediator, are we undermining our own sense of professionalism in the wider society? That's a good question. Is that Colin? Who, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. What that was, was name? Colin. Yes, that was Colin. Uh, Colin, yeah. Colin, a great question. From my standpoint, I, I think I hear that all the time. And at least from my standpoint, 
yes, maybe, although other fields offer pro bono services, I mean, you certainly are not going to find every social worker charging, um, ser- you know, for their services. You're not going to find, you can find uh, now, even in California, there's plenty of state bar requirements regarding pro bono legal services that must be provided by new lawyers. So I'm, I'm not sure it totally emasculates this. I, uh, obviously, I think part of the reason we we engage in it is because there's no entry track into the field that we're trying to create. So quite honestly, um, that's how mediation is now being delivered many times on a pro bono basis. I, I do believe those services would continue even if we could create an entry track through voluntary mediator certification or another track. Uh, Jennifer, do you have some other? No, I agree. And I think um, the regulating bodies for the other professions, not all of them, but many, if not most of them, including the accountants um, who were ranked the lowest, um, do require or expect um, that there be some pro bono work that's done. So it's certainly valued, and because these professions are all intended for the greater good of society, it makes sense that we would do some pro bono work. But uh, I think if mediators stopped doing pro bono work, it would fall to the attorneys who get paid more and the retired judges who get paid more. So I hate to see it go away, and there are certainly people who need mediators who can't afford it. But um, the reason most people aren't able to make a living at it is, we believe, because they can't be, because they're not professionalized. I do, I do see some other questions in the uh, in the Slack room. So, uh, Beth and Lisa, I'm going to try to uh, address as best I can. Um, Beth, you have a great point. The number of hours is not a good measure. Of course not. Uh, those of us in education talk often about learning outcomes, where you have to prove, you know, what you learned. And of course, as we saw, a lot of these fields require an examination. So, in theory, the number of hours really is just um, one part of the input, but if you had an examination, hypothetically, even just on an ethics code, you would have a way to evaluate the quality of that training. So I think that, that might get into it. But yeah, it's going to be a whatever, – whenever you set up a certification or whatever we do from here on in, there's going to be questions about hours, you know, examination, all those things. And I think those those can be answered, but it's good to be asking the questions because if we don't, um, we're never going to get to the level that we would like to be in society. We have to answer those questions for ourselves. And I'd much rather see us voluntarily impose some of those on ourselves rather than let some group from the outside start trying to think about regulating us, um, which certainly happened in California when the state bar tried to uh, regulate us a few years ago. Right. And I, I would add to the hours element of it um, and the learning outcomes is if you know what the learning outcomes need to be, the educational meaning in classroom time really wouldn't necessarily have to be long. I think a lot of times the hours are showing that you're practicing. And so it would be important that the regulating body of peers decided how much practice one had to do and what is a successful outcome of that practice. And I noticed Beth also mentioned that um, a role play being a part of that exam would be beneficial. And I think um, over time that would be great. Obviously that would be a more expensive method than having um, an objective test, but uh, the qualitative elements of that would certainly give you a lot of good information. But I think in terms of hours spent, it's not necessarily classroom time. Um, It could be a very small number of classroom hours and a larger number of practice hours. 
There's one more question by Colin. If you want to answer that, and then we can go back to the slide whenever you're ready. Just let me know. Well, I see, Colin, your question, how much practice does one have to do and what should the outcome of that practice? You know, good question. Great question. And, again, some of these fields require internship hours. Um, you could see a certification requiring some sort of practice before you have to be, before you can become certified. Um, outcome of that practice, interesting question. Um, we all know that when you're in a litigated case, that settlement is a hoped-for outcome. But there's a lot of mediation that goes on that we do as our application and in the public where settlement may not be the ultimate goal. There may be to create greater understanding um, using transformative models or facilitative models. So oftentimes some, some bodies that do some certification informally might require some uh, letters of recommendation from your disputants. Uh, you know, so certainly that could be considered in quotes an outcome. But these are all great questions. And uh, again, I'm glad we're discussing them as mediators because better we discuss it and come up with the model than someone else comes in and says, this is what it has to be. I agree. I think we're finding people who would be great on a regulating body already with the questions that are being asked. Good. Great. So what is the impact so, of not not professionalizing? I think in, to some extent with this group, we're preaching to the choir here, um, but it's worth going over. And um, when we meet groups, even groups of mediators here in Southern California, there's oftentimes an initial resistance. And we find that when we talk about what happens if we don't professionalize in these three points here, um, it, it can be more, more uh, meaningful to those who are quick to say, oh, we don't need to do that. Um, first, public protection. And I really like this quote from the Hinshaw article that I think was made available to the group, and we did get um, permission from the author ahead of time. Regulation is necessary to protect the public from bad actors, incompetent practitioners, and unqualified providers. Again, when you have anyone out there saying, I can be a mediator, I am a mediator, etc., cetera, um, obviously anyone can do that and they can make mistakes they can go in well intended and not know how to mediate they can go in with bad intentions and harm others and if we have a regulating body because we've professionalized and someone can prove that they're a mediator versus someone off the street saying they are um we have the ability to better protect the public and um it's those who don't have access it's those who are lower income who need that protection more than anyone um, because they don't really have recourse if they are uh, in a situation that doesn't work out well for them. So protection of the public is critical. Also public awareness. The public is not aware of the occupational work or how to obtain a practitioner. If you don't professionalize, it's really if someone puts up a website, a shingle on, on their office door, if they start to say, I'm an attorney and a mediator, or I'm a therapist and a mediator, or I'm a life coach and a mediator, and you happen across that, then you might choose them um, for mediation. Obviously, there are some panels that, that will make recommendations for mediators, but as, as Jack pointed out, you're not going to put mediators on speed dial. You can't Google mediators in Los Angeles, mediators in Dallas, mediators in Minneapolis, and get an official website where they're listed. So public awareness is critical. And then the last 
point is the inclusiveness of a diverse practitioner pool. Successful practitioners come from existing professions right now, and most would-be practitioners cannot make a living wage. So practitioners do not represent the diversity of the client base, which is society. So right now, if you want a mediator, you're most likely to go look to a group of attorneys. Maybe you would think to look to therapists um, or social workers, but the likelihood that you're going to find someone that represents you if you're an average member of society among those groups is slim. So really thinking about all of those people who are trying to practice mediation and are not necessarily able to make a living at it, they're a much more diverse group of people. If we professionalize, we'll have the ability to um, – to market that and let people know who they can choose from. Not that they shouldn't choose attorney mediators, but there are many options and um, a lot of different ways to fit the right mediator with the right situation. You know, as we, Patty, as we transition to the next slide, I, you know, Colin, you have some great comments in the Slack room. Um, again, when you talk about certification or licensure or anything along these lines, you're not going to be able to separate out good practitioners from bad practitioners. How many of us have, have met a lawyer who's had a lot of years under their belt and they may not be a very good lawyer or an accountant? Um, you know, that's not what it is, what that speaks to. What a certification speaks to or some licensure speaks to is that they have met the basic requirements and they have some quality assurance that's backing them up. And that's what creates the level of awareness in the public that this is an okay place to call. This is an okay person to at least discuss it with. doesn't mean they're going to be the best mediator they've ever had uh, because licensing and certification can't necessarily define what's good and what's bad. So, um, and Colin, you're right to point that out, and that's true of all those professions we listed. You don't know if you get a good doctor or a bad doctor just because they're licensed to be a doctor. Um, so but there is recourse if it's professional. There is, but there is recourse, and that's what creates the public awareness. Um, I put up this slide. This comes right out of the Hinta article that we provided. Um, you know, I think the the amazing point about that article was that 40% of our workforce in the United States is somehow occupationally regulated, not regulation in the way that. That includes certification. That includes some basic licensure. Um, it doesn't include all the forms we talked about with the other professions. But, you know, we have to consider the fact that as mediators, we're in the other 60%. And, and that's what creates the public perception. Um, that's what's driving that. Um, so being in the other 60%, in this case, it may not be a good thing for us. Um, so I've listed some of the things that qualify you to be in the 40% registering with the government, completing a certain amount of education. We've discussed that, practicing exams, or demonstrating a minimal degree of competency. So all those things um, can make a difference. And, again, that, that's what's driving the public perception of us. That's what's driving that seven slot on that first slide that you all answered. And in other groups, it, it's only gotten as high as six in that first slide on the public perception. Uh, there's a lot you know, to be said, and there's, and there's certainly models around the country about what regulation is, but basically, in, if you go around and survey every state in the United States, there's really no regulation 
of mediation. There's panels that have been created that have some certification power. If you don't abide by the panel rules, you might get dismissed um, by, by the panel, but that doesn't prevent you from going out and potentially doing some harm elsewhere. Um, so, again, uh, if we really want to get to the next level, it's creating that public accountability, saying as a field, we want to be accountable. We, we want to be accountable to the public and thinking in terms of the larger perspective when we make that jump. That will be the jump that elevates us in the public perception. If we go to the next slide, um, I think we want to talk about this paper we also included in our topic for everybody in, in the material. This is the National Conflict Resolution Center in San Diego, uh, who does have their own certification that you can do like many groups do in the United States. Um, and their certification is really not a quality assurance program, so it would never really fit in the band that we were talking about. But they do mediator training and do some certification. But they wrote a paper 10 years ago that sort of resonates. Um, so the first part of the paper is if we don't decide the standards, practice standards for ourselves, someone else will. Um, and... I think that's really important to understand. In California, we have at least fallback. We have understand that five years ago, the state bar tried to come in and regulate mediators. And that, fortunately, that did not carry the day in California, but it won't be the first attempt and it won't be the last attempt, right? You know, because they're, it's, a, it's the kind of field that seemingly from afar, there should be some public accountability for. And it's just that we haven't taken it ourselves. And the question is, do we take it ourselves or do we or do we not? You know, Colin, you bring up a great question. Transformational mediators, facilitated mediators, evaluated mediators, they're all different. How do we how do we get our hands around that? Well, I would say the lawyer who practices criminal law is probably different than the lawyer who writes up a, an estate plan for you. You know, how do they ever get together? And again, it's because the basic standards are not based upon the, how you practice. It's based upon the quality assurance. It's based upon ethics code. It's based upon a lot of those other things, and that's how I think you, you base the standards. Um, but going down this National Conflict Resolution Center paper, um, mediation is growing up and needs to accept responsibilities of adulthood. Well, they wrote that in 2006. I think what they're basically saying is what we presented the initial part is that, hey, look, we've been around a while. We still haven't stepped up and said we want to be accountable in the way that other fields have, and I think that's hurting us at this point. At least that was the position of this author. Um, consumers of mediation need protection, right to know how to find a quality mediator. Right now, quite frankly, it's, it's the laissez-faire system, and, and um, it's actually in some ways worse than the laissez-faire system. And it, it's good for us mediators. There's confidentiality around every mediation we do in every state. There are confidentiality rules that don't allow people to break into what happened in the mediation. That's a great thing. Now, the downside of that is there's really no public accountability even there. You can't sue a bad mediator for malpractice. You really don't have any evidence you could use. And, you know, while that protects us as mediators, it certainly prevents the public from knowing what are good practice standards, what are bad practice standards. So it works against us in this context. Um, 
And that leads to the final point, which we're certainly feeling in California. The sacred cow of mediator confidentiality remains at risk if we not develop a methodology for quality assurance. And that is absolutely the case in California. We have a new legislation that's being introduced this year that has a high chance of passing, which affects the confidentiality rules in California, and basically to address malpractice situations in mediation. And um, why did it come about in California? Why are there proponents of this bill? It's because, in my opinion, we haven't taken care of our own fields. We haven't said, wait a second, we're going to police ourselves, and someone's now coming in, in this case, It'll be the state assembly and saying, okay, if you guys don't do it, then we need to do something. Uh, now, it's limited in California what they're going to address. They're going to address malpractice situations by counsel during mediation, um, but it does erode, if, if it passes, it does erode some of that mediation confidentiality that all of us so treasure. Uh, so, again, it's important that we think about these issues. If we leave mediation out there as a field and, and we don't think about its future, um, its future may be dictated uh, for us by others, uh, and that would be unfortunate. So let me turn to sort of our next uh, set of issues is what we're trying to do in California. Um, and, uh, uh, do you want me to take a uh, Jack? Yeah. Do you want me to take a little break to uh, check in with the uh, the uh, folks in the studio room in the classroom just right quick to see Please. if there's uh, any other additional questions. So for those of you who are on the phone, if you'll press the one key to let me know if you have a comment or question, um, then I'll be able to see that and uh, and let's see if there's any other comments or questions. Yes, it's Susan, right? Yes. This is Susan. She has a question. If you, I'll, I'll try to summarize for her. Uh, go ahead. So in 2005, my understanding is that ACR teamed up with the ABA to hire a consultant to look at the idea of a nationwide certification program. I don't think it got anywhere, but about the same time, the ABA did a, a survey of mediators, and the majority wanted some kind of certification, licensing. I think it was more certification, yet only 57 percent were were willing to pay, say, $200. So the big question is, and I agree with everything you're saying about the necessity of this to build this up into a profession, but the question is, who's going to pay for it if the mediators don't want to? So basically, who's going to pay for it if the mediators don't, don't want to? About 50% don't want to. 50% don't want to do that. Well... I, the 57% that did, uh, you know, again, um, it's, it's one of those things where you don't know until you start it. And if it's voluntary and it's not a state, a state regulation, then, then it's going to start out as voluntary and then it'll have to prove its worth. In other words, if, if we're right and quality assurance is what the public wants, and this is a good idea, then the 57% will find out. Will panels then make a requirement that you have to have this certification? Could very, you know, that would be the hope for thing. We're, we're going to discuss in a few minutes, we're right now working with the LA Superior Court, which is the largest Superior Court in the country, in trying to get our certification standards adopted. If they did, it would be a huge step up. Um, now, they may not. Um, but at least it, it's 
they are standards we've developed from within the mediation field. Uh, in this case, the Southern California Mediation Association, but we're policing our own as it were. But it's a great question, I think, and I do think that um, it's going to have to be the best kind of certification would be voluntary in my mind to begin with, and it'll have to prove its worth. Right, and Colin makes a good point that paying for certification could be a competitive differentiation. All right, very, very good. Um, all right, I don't think we had anyone in the Blog Talk radio studio. They're listening in, so I'm going to go back to the slide here for you on uh, number 10. All right, so California's next steps toward professionalization. Well, yeah, in my in my dreams, but no, it's, it's happening. We've been working on it for, <laughs> for years now. Um, but... Uh, so I am president-elect of the Southern California Mediation Association, which is the largest professional association of its type in California. And uh, we've been working in committees for the last four and a half years and trying to work on this issue. How do we create a voluntary certification program that has some weight that people will pay for? Um, like I said, there's certification programs you can find. The one in San Diego, the paper I just showed you the slide from, their certification program costs you $2,500. So I would suggest there's not going to be many people who can afford to do that. But the, the point is, is we're trying to create a model that is based upon the ACR report that was issued a decade ago, based upon the ADA report that was issued five years ago, that would be helpful to the field and create an entry track for mediators in, into the profession. Um, we formed a 501c6 organization, so a professional organization to do this. It's called the Mediator Certification Consortium of California. And we're right now discussing with the courts, with various panels throughout the state, about whether or not they can adopt our standards. We've gone throughout the state, gotten some feedback um, about initial models. We've made changes to the model, modified it. We feel pretty confident with it now. And so we're trying to move ahead on the very premise of voluntary mediator certification. The next slide, you know, is really that the whole point is for it to be voluntary. Uh, so um, I hope we're on the next slide. I, I can't see yeah, that right we're not, now. We're not seeing the display of slides, but the voluntary mediator certification slide is the next slide. Yeah. So you know again what what would that certification look like it will look a lot like what the public expects in terms of a profession only professions are oftentimes regulated by the state what we're trying to do is a hybrid we're trying to create a model of voluntary certification that will give the quality assurance so the state doesn't feel a need to come in and regulate us later so it has all the earmarks what are those earmarks things we discussed we have a model of how much education training you should have. We have a model for what the exam, it's really an ethics exam, should look like. We have a model for what continuing education needs to be like. Um, we actually, as part of our education model, we also have people do what they call live at the end to their thumbprints, um, you know, just to make sure they're, they're not wanted in 50 states. Um, but, you know, so they're, it has all those earmarks, and we agreed to the ethics code, which is no surprise, would be the ACR, ABA, AAA ethics code, 
plus the California Rules of Court Ethics Code. So uh, not hard. As many of you know, in uh, the article that Jennifer and I wrote, they're, they're part of our sources found that there were you know, over three dozen prominent ethics codes throughout the United States covering mediation and not and not real distinct practices in the outside world on issues like uh, self determination or or neutrality, uh, or lack of bias or quality. You know, there may be uh tweaks people have done here and there. So Again, it's just a question of us saying, hey, look, let's just go ahead and put through some of these earmarks, put through some of this, and, and see where we can go with that. Um, uh, someone mentioned earlier, if we go to the next slide, about the ACR report and the, and the EPA report. I'll talk first about the ADA report, because the certification initiatives that we have in California, we've anchored ourselves to a report that was released five years ago by the ABA. And the report really, it was much more in-depth, but it listed some, um, some points that have to be part of a certification program um, if it's going to be a quality certification program. And I'll just go through all these. Um, the first one is... Have an assessment process capable of determining what, with consistency, whether or not candidates possess the defined skill, knowledge, and value. Now, again, most of the fields we looked at earlier on the first two slides, they all have all of them examination, and that's what we'd be looking to do with this mediator certification. Again, an exam that would test mostly on ethics, but some basic things about mediation. It's a minimum competence kind of exam. But it would be objective, so you wouldn't have the complaints of an evaluative mediator saying, how can this transformative mediator actually uh, evaluate me, or vice versa. So uh, an objective exam is where we focus. I know there's some other groups that prefer to use the subjective exams that are much more costly um, and, of course, lend themselves to some of the discussion elements I just mentioned. Um, if you have a certification in the ABA task force, it's not to say you have to explain clearly to the public what it's relying upon, what the what potential, and what's being certified. So you have to make it clear, and that certainly would be our goal. The third part, um, which obviously gets a lot of comment whenever we talk about it, provide an accessible, transparent system to register complaints against credential mediators. Promptly and fairly investigate complaints and, if appropriate, decredential a mediator who fails to comply with standards. Again, we have panels, including courts, all across this country who have similar kinds of standards where they certify people for their panels, they can investigate complaints, primarily ethics complaints, and decertify them. Uh, so this is not groundbreaking that the ABA says this has got to be part of a good credentialing program. Indeed, that's what we're putting forth in California. Um, the other parts that uh, the ABA report addressed, what shouldn't um, a, a credentialing unit um, include? Well, it shouldn't, include, it shouldn't operate as a mandatory licensing, but that is not what we're looking to do. We're not operating as a mandatory licensing unit. It shouldn't bar non-lawyers from being credentialed. In fact, um, the opposite will happen without us doing something. Recently, many of you um, who are slightly familiar with California may know that 
Five years ago, the Los Angeles Superior Court disbanded their ADR department. Uh, and so right now, the cases that were formerly mediated through the L.A. Superior Court are now basically either uh, going to trial or if the parties want to voluntarily mediate, they might go to mediation. And some of them do. But the court is finding, no surprise, that there's a statutory limit on civil cases of five years, and many of their cases are now pressing the statutory limit because they can't. there's too much volume for the court to handle. Of course, when you abandon your ADR department, that's what's going to happen. So they've reached out to Southern California Mediation Association and others um, about getting mediators in there. And what was their first reach out? Their first reach out is, we want attorney mediators. That's what they said. Send us the attorney. Why are they doing that? Well, some of you might say, well, they're doing that because it's litigate cases, except for the fact that there's many good mediators without JDs who handle and do very, very well in that environment. They're doing that because we haven't gotten it together as a group to try to create our own credential that someone can rely upon. So the easiest thing for the court to do, let's reach out to the attorneys because at least we know they've gone through the live scan process, they've gone through an examination, even if the exam had nothing to do with mediation. But at least we know they've done some things. Um, so my point is, is this. If we don't try to define mediation, if we don't try to place some quality assurance about Again, we're leaving it open to the public and to uh, utilizers of mediation, potential utilizers of mediation services, to go somewhere else. Because we haven't defined what we did. We haven't created the system. The other thing the uh, ABA task force went on to say is we shouldn't ever bar distribution from selecting a non-credential mediator. And again, that's, that's our theory behind voluntary mediator certification. Of course, people can pick non-credential mediators. If we're successful, our emblem, whatever that emblem is for voluntary mediator certification, will become some, something of significance on somebody's business card, um, and it will mean something. But that's for the future to hold. So essentially in California, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a voluntary mediator certification system that would be anchored to the ADA task force report and also be responsive to the ACR report of a decade earlier, which as uh, one of our uh, participants mentioned was never really followed up on. But they indicated that they wanted, you know, many, many years ago, ACR indicated there was a credentialing unit that should be based upon 100 hours of education. We can all argue whether 100 hours is that much more significant than any than 80 hours or 60 hours or whatever, and it will depend upon those outcomes. But um, so we've adopted an 80-hour standard for our mediator certification, and uh, it's it's a real upgrade in California, where 40 hours is sort of the standard. 80 hours is a real upgrade, and we're hoping that all these elements together will provide a certification that will be worthy of the courts, will be worthy of other panels to adopt. Now, what happens if we're not successful? Well, I can tell you as we speak, there's another legislator in California drafting a statewide bill for mandatory mediator certification. And again, he, he, when I've spoken to him and tried to discourage him from doing this, his position is there's no quality assurance 
right now in mediation. And until your field gets it together on quality assurance, I think the state needs to step in and provide that. Now, again, this happens sort of serendipitously as we're trying to move forward with our um, initiative, and I, I'm hopeful that our initiative will prevail over statewide mandatory certifications because I'm not sure that's where we need to go, and I'm also not sure that they would really incorporate some of the values that we have as mediators into the system. I mean, I'm hopeful, and I'm hopeful the state will call upon us and decide to go in that direction. But I think it illustrates what happens when we let the field just sort of float out there, which is sort of, I think, what we've done over the last few years. So that's where uh, media certification is in California, and that's um, sort of why we think we should be moving towards this model. And Jennifer and I have had a great uh, time presenting all this information, but we're very much open to questions and thoughts from the audience. Heather, do you feel like your question was answered? What does the voluntary mediator certification look like? I know Jack was sort of describing it as you posed the question. Yeah, Heather. Heather had the Heather had the question. What is voluntary? Did you get your questions answered? Yeah, she got those uh, questions answered there. And let me check in with the uh, Blog Talk Studio here to see. Um, so any any of the folks that are on the phone now, if you have a comment or question, I'm just going to go ahead and open your lines and see if anyone has anything to say at this point. So all the folks who are on the phone. The line is open. Do you have a comment or question you would like to uh, make at this point? All the folks in our in our studio are quiet. Uh, what about in our audience here? Any other further questions or comments for uh, Dr. Skirt? Yes, Richard. Yes. Okay. I think that Florida has already gone through that. Number three, uh, you know, Florida, 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 Mm -hmm. That's why I talk about the steps going through it and provided an opportunity for non-doctor people to do the process. They require a master's degree, undergraduate and Okay. So I think, you know, I thought of going through California, but I'm not sure that's going to be enough to get us that professional status of a volunteer certification mm. volunteer Florida currently has 40 hours of continuing education at that 40 hours of continuing education every two years in the state of Florida. Okay. And so, getting certification, you've got to maintain that certification for continuing education. And part of that continuing education is mentoring for training you know, other people in the mediation profession by mentoring them for the So, there's a number of requirements in Florida for the certification. So, not, not only the degree, but bachelor's or master's, I believe you said. Master's or Juris Doctorate, 40 hours of continuing education every two years, and this mentorship uh, of mentoring others, that's part. And so the question then became, uh, Jack and Jennifer, were, you know, is what you're proposing enough, given what Florida has, has already put in place in terms of certification? Well, it's a great question. Um, Probably there's probably some variance that uh, state will, you know from state to state. 
I think that um, there's a concept in California about not eliminating the pro bono mediators and their capabilities from the system and allowing them. So you could make an argument that if you make the barriers to entry so high that you may eliminate those of those people who are not interested in the professional practice but are interested in volunteering their services in the community. I know Professor Hinshaw, in his article, if you've had a chance to look at that, would draw a distinction between pro bono mediation and paid-for mediation, and the latter being the one he feels should be regulated, whereas pro bono mediation perhaps should not be regulated. We decided, at least from California standpoint, that it would be make more sense to have a model that fits all, and but it could you could very well be right that in Florida they're taking a model where they're not concerned as much about the barriers to entry they're creating for pro bono mediation that might drive higher standards. And and you're right, there's always gonna be that subject of debate and everybody may answer differently and um, there would be arguments that without a degree, as Jennifer initially initially said, without making everybody have a JD or a master's degree in conflict resolution maybe we're not doing enough. So I think there's always going to be those arguments. There's always, there's always going to be the discussion, but I'm glad to be having it. Right, and I think you're seeing us at a place where we're just looking at a starting point. Where it will evolve to maybe more what Florida's doing or something else, but right now we've got to get California on board with something. Now, uh, one of the clarifying questions in the room, I actually, it goes, I think, to you, Richard. I don't know if you can read it up here, but Beth was asking, uh, is this 40 hours of the same training, or is the 40 hours to be expanding upon the original baseline training? And she gave, uh, she actually just added another, so what qualifies as an additional 40 hours? Uh, is it eight hours of specialized training? such as empathetic listening or another eight hours in understanding identity dynamics, et cetera. Uh, can you clarify that? Yeah, essentially there's, there's qualifications with respect to that, what makes it the education And there's a certain technical aspect of it that is entering So Florida every year has an annual conference very similar to this that brings a lot of those topics up so that people can get their qualifications in the head. So there's a there's a lot of ways to get to that continuing education. I think it's really predicated on you know, being involved in the, in the industry and making sure you're staying on top of the techniques. And you're also having this reoccurring uh, definition of what mediation is and that you understand the new rules. There's also legislation that's passed that governs mediation in Chapter 44 and four state statutes. So understanding all those new so it's really just kind of a, a, a buffet of, of selection. <laughs> I like that, the buffet of selection. So uh, <laughs> so for uh, Beth, who's in the room, and others, uh, if you weren't able to hear, I was able to uh, type some of the responses that Richard was making in the Slack room there. Uh, so there are some criteria around what those 40 hours are, including mentoring, uh, but a lot around you know updating yourself on what the rules and regulations are, techniques, uh, as he says, a buffet of selections. We have about um, so this conference, the A, uh, would qualify for those uh, 40 hours. Uh, so we are getting to uh, very close to the closing mark here. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to respond to, uh, Jennifer and Jack, in the Slack room before we do our closing? 
I think the last comment that Colin made um, that, you know, suspect right now we're not a profession, but we're just a better occupation makes sense. He likened it to Tai Chi or playing tennis. Um, we oftentimes use the example of life coaching, although actually I think they have a higher standard. Um, we can see KDR skills and talk about the benefits. Um, but, yeah, we're not yet a profession, so I, I think that's a great point, unfortunately. All right, thank you. So is there a call to action? Uh, obviously, California is very active and moving forward with this. Florida has done their, their part. Uh, Texas, I know, has the Texas Mediator credentialing. But for folks who are here who have an individual voice, what is the call to action or a step that they can take in their respective states or just in general? Well, I think from my standpoint, Patty, uh, the the call to action really is to question those who would say we don't need to. If you really believe that at the end of the day you want a mediator in every corner, or you would like to see the mediators on speed dial, or whatever vision you want of mediation be more prominent in the public, please the call to action is to understand how how that's linked to how we put together our profession. So the more we say we don't need to be certified or we don't need this or we don't need that, we're basically saying we don't believe in the vision of mediators being on speed dial. That's, that's what, we're, what we're saying. The, the conversations are linked. They're very linked. So I would ask everybody to really think about that and be much more proactive about advancing the conversation um, rather than just saying, well, I'm be an ethics coach because I know I'm ethical. Think about the implications for your field. Think about the amount of mediators right now who can't make a living across the country are well-trained because there's no entry path into the profession. Is it great for the public if they go and off and do something else? I don't think so. 